Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. There's so much, so much value in stepping back and asking, what do I want? What do I actually want? And then going off menu, like asking for what you want. And if, if what you want doesn't exist, creating it for yourself creating your own career, designing your own life. But so much of life operates the other way where like someone's handing you a menu and saying, these are the only options. It's like a multiple choice test, right? You've got A, B, C, and D, but there's actually a hidden option E where you get to fill in the blank with whatever it is that you want. So that moment really stuck with me and the importance of going off menu and asking for or creating whatever it is that you want. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ozan, welcome back to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's great to be back. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you back here. So we had you back when your previous book, How to Think Like a Rocket Scientist, came out. And as I was mentioning uh, just before we hit record here, that is one of those books that I've referred back to repeatedly over the last several years. And uh, when I saw that you had a new book out, it was kind of a no-brainer to have you back. Uh, but before we get into the book, uh, I was trying to think about what I did and didn't ask you the last time we spoke. So this time, I wanted to start by asking you, what was the very first job that you ever had and what impact did that end up having on what you've ended up doing with your life? The very first job I had was working in my middle school library. And I would like, you know, put the back books back on the shelves, clean up and whatnot. And uh, I probably did that for about a year. And the biggest joy of that for me was just like getting lost in the shelves and like picking up random books, flipping through a random page and just reading it and seeing what comes up and like following the breadcrumbs of curiosity and serendipity into the next random fact that I would discover from these books. And so that really stayed with me. One of my favorite activities to these to this day is just getting lost in a bookstore. Um, and walking past the bestseller section and like looking past, you know, the book that's on everyone's bookshelf, but really 
trying to find undiscovered gems that most people haven't heard of before. So don't let me loosen a bookstore with a credit card. It's a, uh, <laughs> it's a dangerous thing. Well, you and I have that in common because I, I noticed that the difference between going to a bookstore versus Amazon was on Amazon, you're searching and in a bookstore, you're browsing. And I think people don't realize there's a big difference. Uh, there's really no room for serendipity when algorithms are recommending everything. Like It was because of uh, just a random trip to Barnes & Noble that we ended up having Andrew Yang as a candidate, uh, as a guest on this show when he was running for president. Uh, and I, I think that that sense of discovery is something that is lost on the internet. But, you know, it, what struck me most about what you said was that this was while you were in middle school. And when I think about going to the library in school, particularly after third, fourth, fifth grade, when, you know, you're not really checking out books just for pure curiosity or enjoyment, but you're pretty much always there for an assignment. Um, why do you think that happens? Like, I, I remember a friend of mine at Berkeley, maybe at the library once, he was like, you know, they actually have other real books here, like the great, Gatsby. I was like, how did you not know this? This is a library. But it was stunning to him that the library at a university had other things he could read other than stuff that he needed to read for school. Right. Yeah. And I think the reason why I knew that from an early age was because I just fell in love with books. The moment I began to like learn to, I learned to read and write, I would just get lost in fantasy worlds created by people like Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke. And so before, you know, I got into the education system where you're told what to read, this is what you should read and you need to finish this. And have that sort of shoved into my hands, I had that sense of discovery of like, oh, I get to choose what I want to read. And there are all of these books out there that sound really interesting. And so I did that from an early age, which means that was already ingrained in me before middle school. And so it was sort of a natural transition from then to be like, well, okay, I'm in the library and I wonder what else I can find here that that might be useful to me. Hmm. Well, why do you think that that is not more prevalent? Because I, I, I have this theory that a lot of people have this idea that they don't like to read and that's because they've never been able to choose what they get to read. Right. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's funny because my dad is a college professor who doesn't read books, which I am always stunned by. I'm like, how the hell did you get a PhD if you don't read books? Um, like he hasn't even read my books. Like he had to listen to the audiobook because he reads very slow. Uh, but that love for reading, like for me, it wasn't something that was prevalent. Like our house wasn't filled with books until I got much older. Um, why do you think that is? Like, why is this not more prevalent the way that you think about reading and books in our education system? I, I really do think it, it has a lot to do with just the education system, the way that it's structured, where you've got this authority figure um, and you've got a school board and everything is predetermined. Here's the approved you know, list of subjects and here's the approved list of, of books. Here's how you need to interpret history. And then whenever something is forced upon a child, uh, the initial reaction is to just refuse. Again, like Awaken Your Genius, my new book, I tell the story of Carl Sagan and how he hated calculus when he was in school. Like this is Carl Sagan, right? Like you think he fell in love with math and physics at an, at an early age, but he hated calculus. In his book, he writes that calculus was invented by, this is what he thought initially was, that calculus was invented by like ill-meaning teachers for intimidation purposes. Until he came across a book, I think it was Arthur C. Clarke actually, on like calculating interplanetary trajectories. And in the book, Clarke was using calculus to calculate these trajectories. And so Sagan then could see for himself why calculus was useful and why calculus would be helpful in 
doing the sorts of things that he found interesting, not somebody else found interesting and told him that he should memorize or read or, or study. So I think when that system operates in the way that it does, which is here's the approved book, here's, you know, you need to read it, you need to finish it. And that's the other part too. Everyone I know is stuck on some book. Like they feel guilty about giving up the book. Like they force march, force march themselves through a book that they don't like. So they stop reading altogether because they don't want to go back to this book. And my reaction always is like, why don't you just stop reading it? Like just put it aside, <laughs> go find a book that you find interesting. But when I tell that to people, I can just see the guilt come back to their bodies. Like they feel guilty because they were told in school, there is no such thing as like, oh, if you don't, like a book, you can just stop reading it. No, like yeah. you have to read it. Otherwise you're going to fail the exam. And so that also sticks with people of like, which is why a lot of people stop reading is because they feel compelled to finish every book they start. And one of the things, one of the joys of my life, my reading life is like, if something doesn't grab my interest by page, I don't know, 30, 40, that book is done. Yeah. Well, we're talking about sunk cost bias there. You know, it, it's, yeah. it's funny because I was just thinking back to this book that I wanted to read um, called Super Intelligence by Nick Bostrom because it was recommended by a bunch of other people in, in different AI books. And I was like, you know what? This book is really difficult to read and mind numbing. I'm not really finding this that interesting, even though it's a bestseller. Um, so one of the things that you say early on in the book is that too often schools cure students of curiosity dispelling any desire they have to pursue what they're interested in instead of asking their own questions and figuring out their answers students are compelled to memorize someone else's answers to someone else's questions the word educate is related to the latin word educus and educus means to deduce or draw out of a person something potential or latent in other words education is supposed to help students develop and ripen what's already within them most education systems do the opposite now you having been here before know that I'm going to ask you this question again three years later. If you were tasked as somebody who has been in our education system with redesigning the entire thing from the ground up in order to accommodate what you are saying there, what would you change? Oh my God, I would change so, so many things. Like, let's just start with the fact that most education systems resemble a dictatorship. Um, you know, you've got strict hierarchy, any unauthorized movement is subject to discipline. Essential bodily functions require a hall pass. Like you have to raise your hand to be able to pee. You've got these arbitrary rules. You can't like wear a hat or chew gum because why? Because somebody said so. Um, and then you've got the way that knowledge is actually um, dispersed, which is this one directional, the authority figure behind the podium gives knowledge and then all the students just sit around the cl classroom and absorb it by osmosis. And so you, and textbooks operate the same way too. You've got these right or wrong answers in a textbook um, and students are supposed to memorize them and then spit them back out on a standardized test. So one of the, one of the first things I would do is let's just start with textbooks, right? I think textbooks need to do a much better job of giving students the behind the scenes look at how ideas are actually formed and discovered. Like there is no, I guess, to be found in a textbook, right? If, if you open a textbook, it's a, it's a series of one dimensional answers, right or wrong answers. And I would change that to just introduce more nuance and give a glimpse to the students into the process of like coming up with ideas instead of just asking students to, to memorize Newton's laws, teach them about how Newton discovered them. 
like the discovery process, the trial and error, the repeated failures, the the iteration and improvement over time, that part of the process is completely hidden from students. And then just the answers are given as if they're the most important thing. And they're not the most important thing uh, because answers change over time. Yet the process of discovery, the process of learning, the process of finding problems and reframing them sticks with you. And so reframing problems is another part of the education system that I would change. The way that education operates now, students are handed problems and they are expected to solve those problems, even if they may not be the right problem to solve. And real life doesn't operate that way, right? You get problems in real life, but the best thinkers uh, and the most capable people are able to take the problem and ask themselves, is there a better problem to solve? Can I reframe this in a way that's actually going to generate better answers? But in school, students are totally hamstrung by by the problem sets, meaning the problem has already been predetermined by somebody else. And your job is to just solve the problem as given to you, which is totally disconnected from, from reality. I would also create a lot more space in, in the education system for students to think through what they find interesting, like room for not just being compelled to learn about, you know, history or learn about World War II because that's what the school board decided was important for the student to learn, but room for students to determine, to ask themselves, what do I actually want to learn about? Like, what am I interested in? You ask that question to an adult now, and most people have a really hard time answering it. Like truly, honestly answering, what do I want to learn? What am I curious about? What am I interested in? Because that curiosity is just stifled from a very early age and instead replaced with a system where somebody else determines what you should be interested in and then you're forced to learn about it versus having some say in in what you learn about and what you're curious about. Yeah. You know, we were talking, you know, it seems like right now about sort of the high school or primary education. And what I realized was that I could basically crush it in primary education through memorization uh, and rote learning. And of course, that doesn't work in college. Like I remember telling a friend, I was like, any moron can get straight A's in high school because it's not an indication of intelligence. It's an indication of discipline. Um, like it doesn't yep. mean you're smart if you get straight A's. And what I realized was that when you get to college, like the way you're tested is uh, you're presented information, but then the context changes when you're tested on it. Um, but I want to come back to that. Um, Dan Pink said something to me uh, about the current education system when we're talking about primary education uh, and part of what's problematic with it. Take a listen. What this system tends to reward is respect for authority and giving the authority figure what he or she wants neatly and on time. And I think what it does is that it inculcates this. What you have in elementary and secondary education is you sort of have the good kids and the bad kids in a way. The good kids are compliant. The bad kids are defiant. But nobody's engaged. And the reason for that is that it's a system built, it's a system built on control and control leads inevitably only to those two kinds of behaviors, compliant behavior or defiant behaviors. So, you know, even things like in elementary, even elementary classrooms where the teachers focus on, and this is not a knock on teachers at all, but, but it just sort of in their professional training, they focus on quote unquote classroom management. What do you make of that? I agree. Um, 
And, and I, I agree. And I was nodding here as I was listening to, to that clip from Dan. And, um, I agree because in part, because I was a compliant kid. Um, like I graduated first in my law school class. And I'm actually, when people say that, when they're like introducing me, I'm embarrassed because what that says is I was really good at complying. I was really good at conforming. If the teacher said, go read this book, I would go and read that book. If the teacher said, this is important, I would, you know, I would also think that it was important. Um, and I was just really good at trying to figure out what my teachers wanted and then just, you know, putting that out on an exam somewhere. And so I do think that the system is built on control and control means you've got kids who comply, uh, who do as their teacher tells them. And those are the kids that excel in the education system. And then you've got the defiant kids who don't conform and research, you know, research, this is study after study shows that most teachers rate creative students as problematic in the classroom precisely because of the reason that Dan mentioned, because creative students tend to try to bend the rules or think unconventionally. And, and that in a system that's built on discipline and control means defiance and defiance means problematic. And so those kids have a really hard time making their way through the education system for that reason. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. 
Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, why is a system that's 200 years old uh, so resistant to change? Because yeah, I just finished reading Todd Rose's book, Dark Horse, and he uh, basically describes this as what he calls the standardization covenant. And basically, it's a system that was standardized to produce standardized output, yet that's not the world we live in today. And I don't think this is any secret to anybody. I mean, I've had enough guests here who are educators who have mentioned the idea that the modern education system was based on uh, the Industrial Revolution to produce factory workers. Right. So why is, is this system so difficult to change? Like, where are the incentives misaligned? I know for a fact, my, da- my dad's a tenured professor. So I, I looked at tenure and I was like, okay, you know, my joke with my dad is like, yeah, you have this cushy retirement. And guess who pays the cost for that? Basically, right. people like me who, you know, take on mountains of student loan debt in order to pay for an education that doesn't lead to its intended outcome. Yeah, I agree. And there, look, there are so many variables at play here. You've got structures that are basically, I mean, in many ways, forcing well-meaning teachers. And I don't want to, I don't want to portray the, the, or give the impression that this is the teacher's fault. Um, yeah. You've got so many forces at work requiring teachers to teach to the test, to standardize, to become more efficient, to overload their classes with students. And so the only way that they can survive and get through the day is to teach in a way that that we just described. Uh, looking back on my life, though, I think the best teachers that I had, and I, the book is dedicated, by the way, to, to teachers who helped awaken my genius and their names are listed um, on the front page there. They were able to, even operating within the strictures of that system, they were able to move out of it and bring their own creativity into the classroom. And I could see how hard it was for them because they had to juggle these responsibilities, juggle the demands placed on them from outside forces, but they still were able to bring out the creativity of their students, not punish defined behavior. Defined, again, in the, in the, the way that we're using it here, defined isn't like, you know, causing a ruckus in the classroom and, and disrupting the, the classroom environment. Defiant means being creative. Defiant means thinking unconventionally. Defiant means you aren't giving the answer that's, that's, that the teacher is expecting to give. That sort of behavior was rewarded by the best teachers that I had and, and punished by the, the not great teachers that I had. Um, and I think at a university level, tenure plays into this for sure. I mean, I, you know, I tell the story in the book, but I quit my tenured professorship uh, in part because I saw myself beginning to decline. I taught the same classes for 10 years um, and it was an amazing career, one that I loved. But I saw myself getting in front of the podium. This was in 20, 2020 before the pandemic. Standing there and thinking, man, my energy, my aliveness for this material is no longer there. Uh, 
And that was a really important signal for me to start to seriously think about leaving academia because I did not want to turn into one of the teachers who just like stood in front of the classroom and went through the motions and taught the same, you know, same cases in law school, the same way that they've taught it for years and years and years and completely grow complacent and hurt the classroom environment in the process. But a lot of professors stick because, you know, you've got tenure. And so it's the cushiest job ever. You know, I don't know how I missed the law school part of your background because of the fact that your previous book was how to think like a rocket scientist. I I didn't even know that you had gone to law school. I want to come back to that. Sure. uh, Because I think there's a lot of things you learn about how to think and construct arguments from uh, a legal education. Two questions come from what you just mentioned. So one thing that I noticed with college was that it felt like I was picking options from a fast food menu and that they just got narrower and narrower and that the options in front of me would blind me to the possibilities that surrounded me. And I felt like, the, at least in the mid-90s, the, the sort of strategy was go and choose what you think will make you employable. And of course, I got shit grades. Um, I did terrible in school. Uh, and also, nobody taught me how to learn. Um, I realized right. st- the way I studied in high school was just not going to be sufficient. Because I feel like if I went back to Berkeley now, I could sit in on a final exam for economics and just through the thought processes I've learned on this podcast, I could probably get a decent grade on it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, do you want me to reflect back to you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I guess, I guess the question is like, you know, why is it that people are not choosing in a way that leads to potentially like a fulfilling career in the future? Like the way it's set up seems, you know, less than ideal for that. Totally. Because you're given, as you said, you call the picking options from from a menu. Um, and I agree with that. I, I remember I went to Cornell. So I was a I was a freshman looking through the course catalog and and being dissatisfied with the menu of options, basically. Like I just kept scrolling through it and I'm like, well, this looks okay, but really I also want to add in this other piece to it. And so I sort of wanted to like put together my own menu. So go off menu, order off menu and say like, you know, I want the, uh, the fried chicken, but the side here doesn't work for me. So I want a different side and, and I don't want the, you know, the drink that comes with it. I want a glass of wine instead or there's something along those lines. Um, so I went to, I remember just trekking to the registrar's office and I just like went up to the person in the the front and I said, I'm, I'm a new student here. Um, this menu doesn't work for me. Is there a way for me to design my own major, to design my own menu? And the answer shockingly was yes. So there was this like little known program uh, that you had to apply for and you needed like recommendation letters. But if you got accepted to it, the college freed you from all graduation requirements, except you had to get 120 credits by the end of the four years, and you had to write a thesis in your senior year. But aside from that, you got to design your entire four-year adventure. I was like, perfect. So I, you know, applied and was accepted, and I got to take exactly the classes that I wanted to take versus the classes that someone else put on the menu and and someone else thought should be good for me. Uh, and that lesson really stuck with me of like, we're often presented a limited menu of options in life in terms of 
what a fulfilling career looks like, what a fulfilling marriage looks like, what a fulfilling life looks like. But man, there's so much, so much value in stepping back and asking, what do I want? What do I actually want? And then going off menu, like asking for what you want. And if, if what you want doesn't exist, creating it for yourself, creating your own career, designing your own life. Um, but so much of life operates the other way where like someone's handing you a menu and saying, these are the only options. It's like a multiple choice test, right? You've got A, B, C, and D, but there's actually a hidden option E where you get to fill in the blank with whatever it is that you want. So that moment really stuck with me and the importance of going off menu and asking for or creating whatever it is that you want. It's funny. I, have you ever seen the movie Accepted with Justin Long? Sounds familiar, but I don't, I don't remember it. The, the premise basically is this kid doesn't get into college. Uh, and so in an effort to get his parents to stop like writing him, he has his friend build a fake website for a fake university and prints an acceptance letter, has it mailed to himself. And his parents basically say, great, you got in. And they hand him, uh, you know, first year's tuition. And so he goes to this place and his friend accidentally makes the website fully functional. And it says acceptance one click away. And when he, he finds this like old mental hospital, he opens the door on day one and there's like a thousand people there who've all paid tuition. And Lewis Black is the dean. And He's unsure what to do. And Lewis Black, you, you know, he says, well, what, what do I, I do for a curriculum? And he was like, maybe I should ask them what they mm. want to learn about. Yeah. And that stayed with me always because I was like, yeah, like, and so basically what he does is he takes everybody's tuition and appropriates it to whatever it is they're interested in learning. Like one guy's like, I want to learn to cook. So he's like, great, appropriate all of this guy's tuition to learning about the culinary arts. And I always thought to myself, like, God, I wish an educational institution would do a pilot program that did exactly that. Right. Yeah, that, that would be amazing. And it, it, it just started at an early age, right? Right before, before yeah. college and in primary school, just giving some room to students to just ask themselves, get used to asking, what am I interested in? What am I curious about? And then creating an environment where they can actually, where they can actually follow their curiosity versus, you know, curiosity just completely uh completely leaving their body so you mentioned that you were basically standing in front of a classroom realizing this was no longer energizing to you or uplifting to you and you decided to put an end to your academic career why do you think that so many people ignore things like that and spend the bulk of their lives doing something they hate only to wake up and realize that half their life has passed them by yeah great question um and i I know the answer because I struggled with it. So this was, this was not an easy decision for me. Uh, I struggled with it for a while, uh, because the signal for transformation for me really arrived before 2020. It was like these little messages from within that inner voice saying, you know, I, this is, this has been really fun. And in 2017, I've been teaching for seven years. This is like shortly after I got tenure. Um, but there was a part of me that was like, man, I spend a year of my life writing an academic article that only 20 people read. Um, and, and I wanted to write for broader audiences and I wanted to write about subjects that I cared about. Um, and that's not to say that I didn't care about the academic articles that I was writing, but the way that 
academia works is, you know, you're, you're writing about this really narrow subject in a really narrow field and you're operating within this really defined container that I don't want to be there. Like I did not want to be boxed anymore. And I wanted to write about rocket science or whatever it is that I wanted to write about. Um, and so even when the signal arrived, I ignored it for a long time because I was afraid. And I think fear of uncertainty and fear of unfailure are probably the two reasons to answer your question why people don't change and why people, you know, wake up um, they're at an old age and realize that they spend most of their career doing something that they didn't love. And so for me, those fears presented as this is my safety net. I have tenure. I have a guaranteed paycheck for life. What will happen if I give that up? Like I am leaping into uncertainty about what this next phase of my life might look like. There is no steady income. There is no guaranteed paycheck. And so there was an enormous fear associated with that. So that was part of it. But probably the biggest problem for me was ego. And ego in the sense of like, I had been a professor for when I quit, you know, 10 years and there was a professor in front of my name for 10 years. Like I had built up credibility in my field and starting a blog, I was going to start from scratch again. I was going to lose all of that credibility and begin from the very, very beginning. And my ego was screaming, kicking and screaming and saying, what are you going to do? And more importantly, who are you going to be if you're not a professor? Um, and so there was a lot of, a lot of those inner voices that come from a misaligned place of tying my own, uh, what I was doing around my, my career, my identity as a professor. And that was really, really hard to, to let that go. And the reason I let it go is I firmly realized two things. Number one, that what I considered my safety net had become a straitjacket. Uh, it was clear to me that my academic commitments were completely depleting my creative energy and my creative energy wanted to go elsewhere. And number two, I realized that there is birth and death. Um, in many ways, life lives on lives and our old selves become compost for our new selves. And I realized, you know, we talked about sunk cost before that the time, energy, resources I had put into my academic career would not be a sunk cost at all. It actually would be a gift from my former self to my, to my current self. So I can take what, what I learned in academia, which was like, you know, I taught these big first year classes filled with students who did not want to be in the room. And that taught me really important lessons about captivating audiences, about the importance of telling story and how to structure a story to grab the attention of, of students who did not want to be in that classroom. And take all of those core components. And also, you know, we didn't talk about this, but you alluded to it with, with law school being an avenue for critical thinking. And that's true. And taking all of that, taking all of those core components from that experience, recombining them to create my new self. I mean, I sort of, I describe this in the book as like the, the transformation of the caterpillar into the, into the butterfly. So I could take what, what I was, what I had learned from my previous career that wasn't lost. And I, I could take those gifts and apply them to what I did next. And that really gave me comfort in, in stepping into the future. So, I mean, what was the impetus for this as the natural follow-up book to uh, 
how to think like a rocket scientist. It actually was not a natural follow-up at all. Um, I, you know, a lot of people probably expected me to write something similar to think like a rocket scientist and I did too. And I tried it. I, um, I sat down and I took, I mean, think like a rocket scientist was successful, at least by, by my metrics, it's been translated to nearly 25 languages now. And there was so much impetus to take what worked for that book <laughs> and try to do the same thing, right? Copy and paste, yep. imitate mm-hmm. my, the thing that worked before the same structure, the same three parts, the same nine chapters, the same everything. And, yeah. and I tried it. And for the first time in my life, I got writer's block. Like words just stopped flowing. I, I find delight. I would say 90% of the writing process is delightful for me. And all delight completely left the room. Um, it totally stifled my writing and my creativity. And then I was like, all right, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna let this go. I'm gonna let all expectations go about what this next book is going to look like. And instead of trying to take what worked before and impose it on this entirely new thing, I just said, okay, I'm going to build the individual puzzle pieces first organically and see where they add up to. Like, I didn't have a title for the book. I didn't really have even a table of contents. Mm -hmm. I just on a day-to-day basis started to write whatever was coming up. Uh, And the more I leaned into what was organically coming up, uh, the easier the writing became. And once all of those structures were gone, I had complete creative freedom to pursue the ideas that I thought were worth writing about. And then over time, see the sort of the bigger picture puzzle that they created. So I can shuffle the individual puzzle pieces around into different parts. Um, but write in a way that was really authentic to what I was feeling at the time and what I was thinking about versus trying to take the thing, you know, trying to take the last best thing and, and recreate it, which totally did not work for me. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll actually get to that. Cause I know you talk about that as one of the, the issues is, is self imitation, but let's start at the beginning. One of the very first things that you say in the book that caught my attention was that content is something you stuff inside a bag. It's something you produce on an assembly line. Nobody wants to get up in the morning and read content over coffee and no truly self-respecting creator wants to generate content either. Because content is normal, content is fungible, content creators can be replaced, artists can't. Expand on that for me. Yeah, it's this part of the book that is about artists and art. And uh, I tell the story about, you know, Gordon McKenzie, who was a longtime artist, I think at Hallmark Cards, he would, you know, visit schools and, and ask a question. And he would ask, how many artists are there in the room? In the first grade, all the kids would jump up from their seats and say, yeah, we're all artists. In the third grade, the number would drop to like five or, or 10 out of 30 kids would raise their hands. And then by the time you got to middle school, only one or two students would like admit to such deviant behavior as, as being an artist. Um, and so as you, as you quoted from the book, we don't even call it art anymore, right? We call it content. Uh, a part of me dies inside whenever someone calls themselves a content creator instead of an artist. Um, and I think we tend to assume that art only happens inside a studio. Like artists are these, you know, tortured souls, poorly compensated. They're working by themselves inside a studio, painstakingly creating a work of art, but if you think about it, art is everywhere. Uh, 
art isn't just related to objects. And as long as you're reimagining the way that the world works, anything that you do can be art. Uh, we were talking about like raising children right before we started recording. The way you raise your children is art. The way as a teacher in the classroom, the way that you defy the status quo and reward creative behavior is art. The new strategy that you design at work is art. Like the way that you talk, the way that you walk, the way that you smile, it can all be art. But if you call what you create content, and if you refuse to think of yourself as an artist, I think you'll be wildly out of touch with a world that requires all of us to be artists and to stop producing content on an assembly line, content that's fungible, content that can be replaced, content that can be written by anybody, and instead become an artist and become, in your words, unmistakable, right? Because artists are unmistakable and, and content creators are the opposite of that. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. 
Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So one of the other things that um, you say that, that really struck me in the book was that the fewer labels that follow I am, the more freedom you have to step into who you are. This is what Buddhists call unbeing, dropping the veil of identity, so that your true self can emerge. And then you go on to say that when our beliefs and our identity merge, we embrace a, a belief system simply to preserve our identity. Any attempt to change our minds, whether by ourselves or worse, someone else strikes us as a threat. And you know, th- that struck me uh, because one, uh, you know, I remember when I did the keynote for podcast movement, I told them I will do this keynote on one condition. And they said, what? That I would not talk about podcasting. Hmm. And they were like, what? And I'm like, well, listen, I'm like, you know, that's just one label. I'm like, you know, I don't see myself as a podcaster, but I'm a storyteller and audio just happens to be one of the mediums through which I tell stories. So I think it would be a far more interesting talk if I did that, because who the hell cares about optimizing your shit on iTunes? I could care less about talking about that. It's not interesting. Um, so why do we get so attached to these labels uh, and, you know, in terms of identity? Because I remember Annie Duke saying something to me when we had her here talking about her new book, Quit. And she said one of the reasons that often people have a hard time quitting something is because their identities are so tied to that thing. Sure. And that was definitely true for me. You know, I thought of myself, as I said, as a professor. And the moment you say, I am a professor, or the moment you say, I am a podcaster, or the moment you say, in the case of Annie, I am a poker player, uh, it becomes really hard to divorce yourself of that identity, particularly if you've been successful at it. So if you've been successful as a podcaster, as you have, if I've been successful as a professor, as I had, it becomes really hard to say, I am actually not this thing that I do. Uh, that's one of the things that I do. It's one part of my multidimensional, multifaceted personality. But to define yourself in the singular fashion by the thing that you do, whether it's a podcast or a lawyer or a doctor, I think is to do yourself a tremendous disservice because you are so much more than that. Um, and not only that, again, but the moment you've identified that strongly with anything, and it doesn't have to be your profession, it could be a political belief system, um, or it could be even, you know, these days people talk about it like a, like a religion, but like, I'm a CrossFitter, or I'm vegan, or I'm paleo, or I'm this, or I'm that. The moment you define yourself by reference to your diet, or to your workout style, or to whatever it might be, in a way that the belief system and identity fuse, the moment that happens is the moment that it will be really hard for you to see the truth. Um, and this is true for tribal affiliations as well, to the extent that the affiliation of a group and the identity of the individual members merge, then it becomes really hard to say anything, do anything, believe anything that's different from, from your group. Um, and so, which is why in the book, I talk about the sense of like shedding your identity, like a snake would shed skin, because the moment you can do that, the moment you can see yourself, not as your identity, but you're just multi-dimensional human being that does different things and believes different things. And you're a constant work in progress. And I think this is the, the other really important part. 
when people talk about finding themselves, it's like, it's as if they like misplaced this like complete version of themselves somewhere in the room and they have to look around and find it. I am not complete. You are not complete. We're still in the middle of the action, constantly evolving and expanding. And the more you can see yourself not as a finished product with this like perfectly crafted set of unchanging beliefs, the better off you'll be because the moment you define yourself as a finished product, that's the moment you stop learning and growing. But if you see yourself as a work in progress, not tied to a set of beliefs, not tied to a particular identity, not tied to a profession. And if you can actually defy your profession, if you can be a podcaster and still one call to give a keynote to an audience of podcasters, say, I'm not going to talk about the podcast. Uh, or if you're, as I am, a former rocket scientist and write a book called Awaken Your Genius, which has poetry in it, because that's like what was coming up for me from moment to moment was like, I want to have these short poems that, uh, that I want to explore, that I want to experiment with. And leaning into that and defining expectations, I think the better off, uh, the better off you'll be. Yeah. Yeah. It, it makes me think about my own experience. Like I realized at a certain point after my second, uh, traditionally published book came out that maybe my career as a published author was over. And you know, it wasn't until I stopped resisting that, that other opportunities started to just reveal themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, you know, telling you earlier about this entire you know, YouTube channel with tutorials I've built that has become like an entire business in and of itself, which I never anticipated starting. Um, but I realized if I had stuck to that, I'm a published author narrative or identity, I would have been completely stuck with that. Yeah, exactly. Because then you're, you've only defined yourself in, in one narrow way. Um, and it's interesting too, the way when I look at my, look back on my life before I completely let something go the other thing didn't fully materialize. It's like, you know, you're this empty container and the more you keep holding on to things for fear of letting them go for the reasons that we talked about before, the longer it will take for the next thing to materialize, right? So the moment I said, I'm done with academia, all of these opportunities to like speak, to give keynotes and to consult and to do other things began to materialize in a way that they hadn't. I mean, I didn't sort of quit cold turkey and ju- just just sort of jump blindly uh, off a cliff. I was experimenting on the side. I mean, I started blogging back in 2016 or 2017 when I was still in academia. Think Like a Rocket Scientist came out when I was still in academia. So it was only after that book achieved some level of success that I actually ended up quitting. But until I quit, the new opportunities did not actually come. So the moment you say I'm done with academia or the, that in your case is I'm, I'm done with being a, a published author, you're saying, okay, like my creative energy is no longer going to go in that direction. I'm closing it off. What other possibilities might there be? So now you've created room in your mind and in your body for new ideas to come through and you're more open to them because you haven't narrowly defined yourself as this one thing. It's funny when I was going through that process of, you know, submitting proposal after proposal to my agent and her constantly saying, no, there's no, no book deal here. One of my friends is like, don't you remember the reason you got your book deal in the first place is that you self-published? And I was like, Jesus Christ, how could I not remember that? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, we end up losing sight of what we did 
or why we're doing something in the first place, which, you know, like it's happening right now. We're recording this on February 20th and we're about two months away from the launch of the, of the new book. Um, and like I said, the writing process is totally delightful for me. But the moment I start thinking about marketing and publicity and sales numbers <laughs> and all of that, it's like, yeah. And so you end up losing and I have to constantly remind myself of like why I wrote the book in the first place and, and, and making sure that I actually live by the principles I write about in the book (laughs) because it's really become hard to do now, now that marketers and publicists and all of this external noise is in the mix that wasn't there before. Well, I I can relate. I remember I had a, a book called an audience of one and my sister calls me. I think a week or two after it comes out and she says, how's it going? I was like, well, it's not selling as many copies as I hoped it would. She was like, you're an idiot. That's the entire message of the book. Um, she's like, if you don't believe what you wrote, why would anybody else believe it? And it just, it struck me so much that like, yeah, cause I, I said in interviews, I was like, yeah, we call it an audience of one. I'm sure a publisher would be happy if it reached an audience of millions. I want to come back to metrics because I know you read about it. Um, but I want to go into something that I think was really a, an important important part of the book that I, was probably one of my favorite parts. You say that we follow narratives, not evidence. We judge the message by the tribal affiliation of the speaker. We accept information endorsed by our tribe without investigating it or thinking it through for ourselves. Conversely, we reject information from competing sources, sources regardless of its quality. That sentence, right, the passage right there, I think, speaks to so many of the other things that you talk about in the book, uh, ranging from, you know, first principles to critical thinking. So. Talk to me about how a legal education informs your critical thinking abilities. And then let's get into first principles. Because remember, I was telling you right before we hit record here, I finally just went into chat GPT. I was explaining this to a five-year-old, but I'm going to have you, Mr. Rocket Scientist, explain first principles. Now that I have you here, I want to basically get a clear understanding of it. Sure. Um, on the on the first point about critical thinking and, and the passage you quoted and how it relates to to law school, I think one of the one of the best things that happened for my legal education, um, and by the way, a lot of people go to law school for all the wrong reasons, but setting that aside, one of the, one of the best things that happened from my legal education was I really crafted the ability, which had started with my science education, of being able to see different perspectives on the same issue. Not being blinded by your own ideas or your belief systems and not, you know, falling victim to confirmation bias but actually seeing the same issue from completely different perspectives, because that's what the best lawyers do. The best lawyers know the opposition's argument better than the opposition does. Because the moment you know your opponent's argument better than they do, then you're able to craft counter arguments, anticipate what they're going to say, and take the wind out of their sails in in so many different ways. And so the best law professors and the best legal education systems really teach you how to do that. And I think that skill is in so many ways absent from modern discourse, right? We, you know, we live in these echo chambers and we accept as truth the, the messages that we get from our own political party, to cite one example. Um, and then we reject automatically any perspective that doesn't fit our worldview. And actually we're not even, we're not even exposed to different perspectives because it's so easy to unsubscribe, unfollow, unfriend. And so your intellectual vista completely narrows to only those who parrot your worldview. So it becomes really, really hard to see different perspectives on an issue 
Um, and that's something that, again, legal education taught me. Uh, and it begins also with my scientific training too, because the scientific method, when done accurately, is all about beating the crap out of your own ideas. The science is, science is based on falsification. So your goal is to generate a hypothesis and try to prove your own self wrong. Um, even though most people try to do the opposite, right? Because you get a hit of dopamine when you are proven right, but the best scientists come up with a working hypothesis and working is the most important part here. They're not wedded to their idea. They're not wedded to their diagnosis. They're coming up with a working hypothesis that's that's subject to modification and that they're doing their very, very best to actually falsify themselves. And I think that's what the best thinkers do is they keep an open mind and they try to see multiple perspectives on the issue. And truthfully, life becomes a lot more interesting that way. When you don't see life as a series of yes or no answers or black and white and good or bad, I tell the story in, this, in the book of um, about meditation. And uh, I'd shared this study with, I have an email list, um, write an email, a blog post every Thursday that, that goes out to them. And I'd share this research that I'd come across about meditation, how a significant number of meditators actually experience adverse effects. And, and initially when I read the study, I was tempted to reject it because I've been a life, I'm not lifelong, but I've been meditating probably for 10 years regularly and I've been an evangelist for his benefits. So when I saw the research, I was like, oh, this is, there's got to be some problem with this. Like I could see my confirmation bias kicking in and my own identity as a meditator getting in the way. But I read the research and yeah, like a good number of people, I don't remember the numbers right now, they're in the book, um, actually experience adverse effects, including anxiety and some of the problems can be can be severe. And I shared the research with my audience to meditate on the dangers of thinking in these simplistic categories treating meditation as a universal remedy or just the beauty of multifaceted and nuanced thinking. And here's the interesting part. I got more hate mail for that post than anything else I've written in, in recent memory. So much hate mail from meditators too, which is really <laughs> sort of ironic, right? Because meditation teaches um, loose attachment to ideas and, and whatnot. But, but people were so tied to their identity as a meditator and so unwilling to even think about and a study, a peer reviewed research study that introduced some, some nuance to this. Um, so it's, it's really hard to do because in many ways we're wired to thinking categories, but there's yeah. so much beauty and so much value to opening yourself up and seeing nuance and, and complexity. I mean, well, that's why I started writing a book titled Everybody is Full of Shit, including me. Like, uh, you know, and it was a book about exact about how cognitive biases, you know, distort our ways of thinking, because um, I saw it over and over and over again in my own thinking. And I know you go into, you know, talking about causation and correlation, particularly when it comes to uh, stories about success. But before we get to that, let's get into the, the concept of first principles. Um, and you say that this is the power of first principles thinking of distilling into its core ingredients and building it back up into a different system. The power of first principles thinking can be used far beyond the world of business. You can also use this thinking to find raw materials within yourself and build the new you. Take a moment to tease out your own building, basic building blocks, the Lego blocks of your talents, interests, and preferences. So explain the, the concept of first principles thinking to us, because I think the story that 
always stayed with me about first principles thinking from your previous book was the Tim Urban story. Oh, yes, yes. I was like, the Tim Urban story. One of the dangers of, of writing a book and then not thinking about it for three years is like, wait, what story was that? <laughs> Don't worry. I, you know what? I, because I've spent so much time reading everybody's books and doing these interviews, I remember when I had Tiago Forte here, you know, I'd asked him about some question about the book and he was like, oh yeah, what were those things again? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, well, I know them because I've studied your book inside and out. But yeah, um, <laughs> that story always stayed with me as a, a first principles example. Uh, so, Explain first principles and then bring it back to that example so people know what the hell we're talking about. Sure. Yeah. And, and correct me if, if I'm not thinking about the, the, the right example, the one I actually included in the book. But so first principles thinking is taking a system and then distilling it to its core components and then building it up from scratch. And so you are letting go of everything except for what is essential. And then once you've identified the core components, the raw materials, then you can build it up. And build it up in a different way. So reimagine as you go. Um, and so I think the two examples come to mind from, from think like a rocket scientist. I think one of them was involving the, the way that SpaceX started. Um, and one of the ways that they've been able to cut costs is because they applied first principles thinking in terms of distilling a rocket into its core components. So instead of saying, oh, we're just going to buy rockets that other people have built, stepping back and asking, well, wait a minute, what is a rocket actually made out of? Like, what are the non-negotiable um, raw materials of a rocket? And then building a rocket based on those non-negotiable raw materials and reimagining things as you go. So one of the things that they re reimagined, for example, was this assumption that rockets are not reusable. So rockets would burn up in the atmosphere or plunge into the ocean, requiring an entirely new rocket to be rebuilt for decades. And they've been able to reimagine that. And so now we've got a, you know, a landing pad next to the launch pad at Kennedy Space Center. And now rockets that carry their cargo into orbit are, are landing back on, on solid ground. Um, and I think, so that was one of the examples that I mentioned in the book of, of the power of of first principles thinking. And I think the Tim Urban example you might be thinking about, and correct me if I'm wrong, is like the difference between a chef and a cook. So a chef goes to the first principles, the raw ingredients, and builds this, you know, new dish from scratch. Whereas a cook just takes a recipe and just replicates it. They, they, it takes a recipe, they take a recipe that was invented by somebody else and you just sort of copy and paste. Whereas a chef plays with the first principles of a dish, you know, with the herbs and the spices and, and the, the, the core ingredients and, and reimagines things as they go and creates these, you know, beautiful products from, from scratch that are unmistakably theirs. Am I remembering the right example or did you have yeah, something you else are. in mind? Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's the, that's first principles thinking for me. And, and I think that's true for your own personal self as well. And so the passage you quote Srini around identifying your own Lego blocks is an exercise in identifying your own first principles. Like what makes you, you? What are your core ingredients, your superpowers that make you different from other people? Um, so I'll give you an example from my life in case people are wondering, well, what could those look like? One of my first principles is storytelling. And, and the, the reason I know that is I took the time 
this was a few years ago, to look back on my life and identify certain themes that have been there all along. So one of the first things I did after I learned to read and write was I would write stories. Um, my grandfather had this old typewriter and I would just sit in front of the typewriter and, and write stories, right? Before the, before the education system told me what I should be doing and what I should be interested in, that was just a core interest of mine. I would just write screenplays and, you know, I would, I started a magazine and my parents were the only readers, but that, that started from a very young age. And then it continued. Uh, I took a break from it, you know, during middle and high school, uh, for reasons that you can imagine. And then rocket science sort of pulled my interest in a different direction. But then as a lawyer, I was tasked with telling stories on behalf of my clients. Um, as a professor, I had to tell captivating stories in, in the classroom and really, and also in terms of telling stories to discover the first principles of a good story, um, and then build it back up in the way that I thought would resonate with the, with the audiences that I was trying to reach. And so that core component, the core ingredient has been constant for me. And now, of course, as an author, I, I tell stories in the books that I write and I try to convey stories or principles and the Trojan horse of a story because stories stick in a way that, you know, dry facts and dry sentences don't. People tend to remember the story rather than the, the principle that you share with them. And so looking back on my life, that core ingredient has been there. The dishes that I've cooked with it have changed over time, but storytelling has always been there. And so I encourage you to do this if you're listening to this to do that exercise for yourself and there's additional ways of doing this that I describe in the book but once you identify those first principles then you will be well positioned to reimagine what you're doing and to escape from this trap that we talked about before of you know defining yourself as a lawyer for example because if you define yourself instead as a storyteller then possibilities open up for you that you may have initially missed. Now you might be well-tailored or well-positioned to also be an author uh, or to be a screenwriter, to do all of these different things. But that requires stepping away from the way that we narrowly view ourselves by our profession and instead identify your core components and then reimagine yourself as you go. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny to to listen to you describe this. It just got me thinking when you said storytelling, because I mean, I know that's a part of mine. And, uh, you know, I'd never thought about this. I didn't realize like one of my probably other first principles is um, using technology to express creativity. Like that mm-hmm. is at the core of everything that I think like my first instinct every single time I see a new tool is what can I make with this? Like and it, I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, but yeah, the thing about the Tim Urban story, I think that struck me most was that he broke it down to first principles and Tim Urban basically doesn't follow any of the, you know, common wisdom of blogging, um, you know, which is basically writing like an 80,000 word blog post once every, you know, like two months or something like that, which I think was really such a contrast to the way that people, uh, did things, um. But speaking of that, uh, you know, it's funny because we're not doing this in a linear order. I didn't would make sense now that, you know, given what this book is about. But you go on later in the book to talk about formulas for success. And as I said, I think my favorite quote from your previous book, one that I turned into a blog post, was that you can't copy and paste somebody else's path to success. And you say that formulas for success satisfy the popular craving for heroes, but they are they also mislead. We're seeing 
only the survivors, not the failures, who took the bullets to their engine and never returned home. The aspiring entrepreneur who moved to Silicon Valley to pursue a startup only to fail doesn't make the cover of Fast Company. And success stories also discount the role of luck. Uh, the pilot may have gotten lucky and never taken a bullet in the engine. And this is the guy who smokes like a chimney, drinks like a sailor, and still lives to be 95. And I think that the reasons that those stood out to me was because, I mean, the entire sort of thesis of Unmistakable, my first book, was uh, in a lot of ways the idea that you can't copy and paste because I just saw it over and over and over where somebody would see a successful person do something and then they would, you know, try to replicate that thing. Like people who took online courses, they would go into the course and then they would do exactly what the instructor did and they were shocked that they didn't get the same results. And I was like, how are you not seeing that there's one really fucking obvious variable in this equation? Look in the mirror. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think like and the copy and pasting is so ingrained. Um, part of it is genetic wiring. We're wired to conform in many ways. But part of it is what we talked about before, which is like, well, this is what the education system teaches, right? Education system to circle back, come full circle to the beginning of the conversation is is all about copying and pasting somebody else's path to success. Like there is one path, one right answer, one right curriculum, one right way to interpret history. And that's the message that people hear over and over again. No wonder they go into the real world and assume that if you just, you know, copy and paste what some some successful person did, you're going to get the same results. But life doesn't work that way. As you said, there's that huge variable, the the person in the mirror, and you're just not seeing all of the you're not seeing all of the failures. Like if you pull up, this just popped to mind. If you pull up an, an online course, um, like, a, like a sales page for an online course, you only see the testimonials from the people who love the course, right? You, you're only <laughs> seeing the, the, the raving reviews, the carefully tailored, carefully selected testimonials that give this very one-dimensional picture of the results that you might get by taking that online course. But whenever I see that, my mind always goes to like, where are the failures here? Like, where are the people who asked for a refund? Or where are the people who took the course, did exactly what was said, and did not get any results from it? Uh, uh-huh. Because you are not seeing those people, and those people definitely exist. Um, and when you bring that mindset to, like, what you read about in the news, or the latest fad diet, or, you know, the, the latest workout hack, you're like, okay, what am I not seeing? What am I missing? How is the survivorship bias at play here where I'm only looking at the success stories and being completely fooled as as a result? Um, because there's just so much of that, of the focus on success stories. And in many ways, you're just not seeing the failures at all. Yeah. Well, let's talk about metrics in particular, because there was something about metrics that you said that really struck me. Obviously. Metrics matter. You and I are both published authors of publishers going to determine whether or not we get another book deal based on how many books we sell. But what you say is that when we're too focused on the things we measure, we can lose sight of everything else, including common sense. Measurement has another downside. It prompts us on to focus on outcomes that are easy to measure. Um, and that really struck me because we live in such a metrics driven world. We do. And I think it, it leads us astray in many ways for the reason you, you quoted from the book, which is that when 
And Peter Drucker has this famous quote attributed to him, which is that what gets measured gets managed, but then what gets measured also gets all the focus. You know, we, we focus on what's easy to measure, not necessarily what matters. So like lawyers count billable hours and six minute increments. Computer programmers count lines of code. Uh, writers count words. A lot of people count the zeros at the end of their bank account. But then, well, what are the, what are the metrics that we are not measuring or that are not, that are not easily measurable? Um, like values like humility and courage and beauty and play are a lot more shapeless. So they get ignored. Like it's not easy to say, am I a better colleague or a better parent than I was last year? Because there is no quantification attached to it. And I think the epitome, the epitome of what happens when we focus too much on measurement is a strip mall. Uh, the strip mall is like the epitome of trying to get efficiency from every square foot. It's, it's the, the result of a mindset that asks, how do we get every single dollar that we can get from every square inch of space? And then you end up with a strip mall. And there's what, six, more than 65,000 strip malls in the United States. They all look the same. They're all extremely ugly pieces of architecture. I was on a road trip this past Thanksgiving going by all of these strip malls and like thinking to myself, man, thousands of years of architectural development. And we ended up with the strip mall as one of the most <laughs> prevalent pieces of architecture in the United States. It's, it's incredible. And it only becomes credible when you start thinking about why that's happening. And it's happening because we're focusing only on what we can measure. Because beauty in architecture, you can't quantify. And, and if you're focusing only on what you can measure, then you're going to ignore beauty. Uh, and like I said, you know, with like the marketing process for my book, when I'm focusing only on external metrics, I completely lose sight of why I'm writing in the first place. Yes, they're there and they matter to whether, you know, I get a, another publishing deal. But when I focus incessantly on them, I end up taking my hands off the wheel and, and handing control over to a set of metrics that are going to lead me off course. And they're going to make me forget why I decided to write the book in the first place. You know, in the same way that you described of like an audience of one losing sight of of that message if you're too focused on the number of copies that that you're trying to push. Yeah. Well, um, I, I feel like I could talk to you all day about this book. I mean, it's so deep and so rich with so many different ideas. Uh, but in the interest of time, uh, I'm going to finish with my final question, which I know you've heard me ask you before. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I'll reply we, with a story since, you know, the theme has been storytelling, uh, and I'll make it shorter than, than it is in the book. But, uh, so I grew up in a, in, in Turkey and the education system, as we alluded to, was, was extremely conformist. Um, so much so like one just example from the book is our, our principal called us by, we were assigned a number when we started school, kind of like in, in that Netflix show, Stranger Things, like 11. And our principal would call us by that number instead of our first name. Like talk about enforced conformity, stripping your individual qualities and, uh, and growing, growing up in that system, I felt so much pressure to conform, so much pressure to become normal that I ended up even changing my favorite color. Like when people would ask when I was growing up, 
what what's your favorite color? Uh, I would say blue. And the, the truth would have been purple, but I would say blue because blue is what normal boys were supposed to like. And I really, really wanted to be normal because my eccentric tastes and differences had gotten in the way in many ways. Um, and, and so it's been a lifelong journey for me of, of discovering my purple and, and reconnecting with it. And I think unmistakable people are the ones who truly embrace their purple, their first principles, their own genius, what makes them different from other people. Because in the end, no one can compete with you at being you, right? You're the first and the last time that you'll ever have. And if your thinking is an extension of you, if what you're building is a product of your own genius, your own wisdom, your own purple, your own first principles, well, then you will be unmistakable. Amazing. Uh, Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, the book, your work, and everything else that you're up to? Yeah, the book Awaken Your Genius is available wherever books are sold. If you want an easy way to find the links to get the book, you can go to geniusbook.net. That's geniusbook.net. And if you want to keep in touch with me, I am not active on social media. So the best way to do that is to join my email list. I send out one email a week uh, that you can read in three minutes or less with one big idea. Um, and you can join that by heading over to my website, which is ozanmarol.com. That's O-Z-A-N-V-I-S-M-I-C-T-O-R-A-R-O-L.com. Or speaking of using technology, as part of creativity, you can text my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 55444 to join the email list. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.